Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You wake up in the morning, and then what happens? <laughs> oh, put your headphones on, Peter. Uh, uh. Oh, yeah. Come on, put your arms around. <laughs> I want to hug you and hug you and hug you some more right through all these microphone cables. <laughs> Go ahead. I know I'm in the right time, in the right space. Do you feel that? I'm Helga Davis. Sometimes it happens that life will bring you together with people, right? So I was invited to Mass Mocha, which is the Massachusetts uh, Museum of Contemporary Art up in North Adams, Massachusetts, to just come and hang out for the day with a few other artists. And the idea was to look at Nick Cave's installation there. That's the visual artist, Nick Cave, not the singer, Nick Cave. And that installation is called Until. And in my usual form, I didn't even look to see who else was coming. I just said yes and got on a train and went. Much to my delight, uh, in addition to Bill T. Jones and Carl Hancock Rucks, there was also Solange Knowles, with whom I hit it off quite spectacularly. It was so great to meet her, to meet her eyes, to shake her hand. And we just started to have this conversation, and it was a conversation I knew we needed to continue. And right on the heels of her performance on Saturday Night Live, she came. And here it is, our conversation. I'm so, so happy to see you. Same. Okay, here we go. Hi, Solange. Hello. (laughs) Tell the people who you are. Let me put my headphones on and and be up in that. I am Solange. Mm -hmm. Yes, you are. I am a singer, songwriter, and artist. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really happy to be here with you today. It's it's great to see you. Yes. It's really great to see you. So we were kind of having this conversation already. And I feel like what's also important about these conversations to me and what I took from you is that everything that you're saying, you may be dealing with a record company or with your your life as an artist, mm-hmm. but you're also a person. And everything that you were talking about is a thing that every person has somewhere in their lives. It's every relationship, right? Because we're really talking about relationships. Right. And so tell, tell me a little bit about... Um, how you how you got in this thing? Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, it's been a long journey. Mm-hmm. I started writing music when I was in fourth grade. I would write these little uh, with just acapella ideas, and uh, there was a statewide search from the United Way Foundation that they were looking for a student to write their new jingle. And so at my school, I remember seeing the flyer and um, entering this contest. And I think there were about, I don't know, maybe 5,000 applicants. And I won second place. um, And I got to write the United Way jingle. 
um, regionally. And that was kind of my first time realizing that I felt that my best way of communicating was through songwriting. Um, And from there, uh, I released an album when I was 15. Wow. Yes, I was a baby girl. And uh, I actually um, wrote most of that record during a really transitional time in my life. I feel like the ages between like 13 and 17 are so loaded Mm -hmm. emotionally Mm -hmm. um, that I just felt the need to get all of this out on wax. And I remember going to a lot of those sessions and producers, you know, having ready-made songs play for me when I would get to the studio and I would say, hey, you know, I actually write my own music. And of course, I was like a ninth grader and they'd be like, okay, well, if you want to change a word or two, you know, you can do that. (laughs) And I was like, no, I'm going to sing you what I have in mind. And so that was like kind of my coming out. And that was a really challenging time because that was at the height of, you know, in sync, Britney Spears, boy band, just straight pop music. And um, I think that it was a challenging time to have that point of view. And I also was going through that stage. You know, I had cut all my hair off. I was a vegan. Um, I was studying Rastafarian culture. I had taken a pilgrimage to Jamaica a couple of times and was like the suburban Rastafarian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I felt like I had so much, you know, um, to get out on that record. But timing is everything. And it it was a really hard time for people to receive that. I remember in on my album cover, I actually, of course, have the red, black, green, and yellow knit cap. And it was just a strange time to to really stand for that. And that wasn't who I was. Who who are you at fifteen anyway? Well, well, wait a minute now. <laughs> Sorry, Helgi begs to differ. If if mm-hmm. you are making your own music, yeah. there there is something you know. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I stand by that record. Okay. As a songwriter, especially, I feel like there's a certain ripeness at that age um, that I was able to really contextualize things in a much more unfiltered and raw um way in terms of just being able to emotionally convey those messages without the outside noise of like, you know, how do I break this down in three Mm -hmm. minutes? It was just letting it out at that age. And were you signed to some, to a big label? I was. I was actually signed to the same label that I'm back on now, which is (laughs) Columbia Records, Uh but it was a very different building. And uh, I obviously came from this very well-known family. And I think that it was just really confusing. It wasn't what they signed up for. What do you think they signed up for? What what do you think they signed up for? Well, I think that during that time, again, that was at the height of the pop music Music. era. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I think that they thought they were going to get an approachable 
pop music to step in. <laughs> oh, they were so wrong. They were wrong. They were so wrong. I actually had like Brothers Johnson playing guitar on that album. Right. They were like so wrong about what was what they yeah. signed up for. Yeah. But you know, it was really so great and such I'm so I feel so lucky and privileged that I got to have that opportunity as a young girl for my introduction to be me standing really firm in my vision and my voice and not compromising that. And um, I think that it every step and stage has led to where I am now. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that album. It was it was called Solo Star. Um <laughs> So that was that record. And then after that, I actually decided that I just wanted to be a songwriter, Mm -hmm. that I didn't have really any will to be leading the face um, and the movement of of the album itself, that I really enjoy writing the music. And so I actually signed a publishing deal with Universal as a songwriter and I began to write a lot of songs for my sister and for Destiny's Child and other artists. And I also thoroughly enjoyed writing pop music um, in that genre of pop music. Because I say that pop music is just popular music, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I just didn't want to perform it. So I did that. Um, and then I grew up really quickly. I got married at 17. Wow. I had my son when I was 18. I moved to Idaho. And <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Collective giggle right now. I know. What were you doing in Idaho? Other. My son's father was playing football at University of Idaho. We had been together since we were 13. We were madly in love, teenagers. And when he said he wanted to go to school there, I thought, okay, let's try it. Let's let's try it out. And um, it was really insanely difficult. <laughs> to, because? Well, for starters, it was, I think, a population of about 15,000. Around 14,000 of that population were college students. And here I was, I was a little tour baby. I had been on the road since I was 13. So I didn't really know how to be around college kids, Mm -hmm. especially having a newborn son Um, and having this publishing deal, which as you know, you have to deliver a certain amount of songs a year. Not deliver, you have to place a certain amount of songs a year. Ah, So not just write. Yes, you can write a hundred songs, but you have to place, you know, 15 or, or 10 or however many oh. that year on albums. Oh. So it was an incredible amount of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you just had to write them. Oh, no. Oh. No. Yeah, that, that, that would contract be too easy, is for how many you actually place. place. So... You know, so the hustle is on you the hustle is to on get you. people to listen, to, to want to record. Songs. Right. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So that was at 18 years old, you know. With I a baby. Had, with a baby. And, and a partner who is in the school yes. in Idaho. Snowy, snowy got, Idaho. Got the picture. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember those days of going and 
my baby in the carrier, just hoping that he wouldn't make noise while I was, you know, demoing out these songs. And luckily I did reach all of my placements that year, but I had a plethora of music that just was not getting Mm. touched. Mm -hmm. And I was, um, I think my introduction into motherhood, I was really wanting to connect with my mother. And my mother was actually in a little singing group. She would, be, she would raise an eyebrow that I said, little, let me take that back. <laughs> she we'll was that in a singing group <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> in the 60s, a local singing group called, called the Veltones. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were modeled off of the Supremes. So I felt a strong connection to kind of revisit that. And so I started writing these songs that were kind of mirroring that era of 60s soul and pop music. And um, they just were not getting touched. I would send them and they'd pick the other ones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so by the end of that process, I had maybe 25 of those songs And here I was saying I didn't want to be an artist anymore, but these songs have to be heard. And um, I believe. And we talk a lot about the universe creating a situation for us to step into, and there was yours, right? Yeah, that was it. And so? And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to package this as an album, shop it around, see if there's any interest, but I'm going to do it my way this time. And so now I've grown-ish. Uh-huh. 18. Yes, grown-ish. Grown-ish. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I feel like I would be able to navigate this better. So uh, I shopped it around, didn't have a lot of interest from labels. But there was one guy, uh, his name was Sean. He goes by Tubby. He was in A&R at Interscope Records. And he said that he wanted to come down and, you know, hear the record. He had heard just a couple of songs. And um, by that time, I had been transitioning back to Houston, where I'm from. Uh, My son's father and I were having some issues. I needed that hometown support system. Um, So maybe, like, I would say I shopped it around for, like, a year. So... Maybe a year after that, Tubby came down. He heard the record. Um, He loved it, but he definitely felt like it needed some more development. So I spent um, maybe another year taking the same sound, the same sonics. There were maybe six of those records. And I went to some different producers to help kind of elevate this. And uh, Tubby ended up signing the record. And here I was. My album was exactly how I wanted it to be. No compromising. I felt very in control. And then it came time to promote and market it. And that's when the (laughs) noise happened. (laughs) That was very good. Yes. (laughs) The journey kind of took a screech. Um, I remember the first sign of the alarm going off was it was time to shoot the album cover. And I had conceived this idea to take all of these 60s pop art references and kind of solidify them. So 
I wanted the album covers to be a huge Campbell soup, um, you know, modeled off of the very iconic Warhol. Oh, mm-hmm. And I wanted it to say, Can I Sing Soup? And um, I had all of these. You like, had it in your mind. All in my mind. Exactly what you wanted. And I, you know, mood boarded it all out. I sent it to the label. They were like, Okay, cool. Um, and then the day before the shoot, they said, oh, we can't get any of this licensed. So we we booked another location and another photographer and another concept for the cover the day before. And I'd like to think that they probably have known at that point a couple weeks that they couldn't get clearance on a famous Andy Warhol <laughs> piece. Um, but I was in a crunch in, in that situation. I was given 24 hours to basically be told what the shoot was going to be. Um, and so I went the next day with my badass mom and... In a really bratty act of rebellion, which I now actually regret, um, they booked this mid-century, super glossy, you know, house to shoot the cover shoot in, which had absolutely no connection to the music that Mm -hmm. I was making. And so I actually, like, went out in front of the house in the front yard and just, like, poured trash everywhere. absolutely ridiculous and my mom helped me actually um and I didn't use any of the house I just like did the shoot in the front yard it was totally random and I wish I would have thought it through but I was just so upset Mm -hmm. that I could not step foot in this house and um we worked with what we had. I think we went out and got a vinyl player. My mom spray painted some angel wings. It was absolutely random as hell, mm-hmm. but it was kind of the state of chaos. Right. And it that, was also you still taking yeah. ownership of your work absolutely. and of your vision. Absolutely. Um, and in that, in that reflection of time, it was very true. That is how things felt in that moment. Um, And so that was kind of the first sign that, hey, wait, I am back on a major label. I am back using their funds to fund my art. And, oh, yeah, this is why I said that I wasn't going to do this in Mm -hmm. the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, And and there were major highs during that time. I think the highs were musically. I was so proud of my work. I was so proud to um, be a young black woman in that space and having the space and freedom to experiment in that way I was so proud that you know I was such a like geeky fangirl of of all of this downbeat electronic music and the fact that Boards of Canada and Thievery Corp were giving license for me to collaborate with them that meant a lot to me especially during that time like that was that was not going down that kind of genre mixing in that way, um, especially not with young black women. And so I I felt really great about the music. I felt really bummed about the way that the record was being marketed. I remember um, having the big label 
meeting where you go in and you pitch all your ideas and saying, I'm like trying to be like a young black New York and everyone kind of being like, Food? <laughs> Again. <laughs> um, and so it came time to shoot my first video. Mm-hmm. And uh, my best friend, still to this day, Melina Matsukas, uh, was the co-director. And, you know, she came from the NYU film program. She was very grassroots, very ready to go there. She's actually the daughter of a Cuban communist um, and a professor um, at NYU. And so, like, we were ready, you know, to go there. And we used references of of Che and Malcolm X and Asada and all of these social um, landmarks are happening in this video. And important for you. Yeah, super important to me to have that connectivity socially and as an activist through my art. Even then, that was super important to me. Um, But I did it in a very pop art way. It was still very colorful. It was still very performative. And I essentially went through the times from the 60s to the future in this video while basically um, revisiting these... um, iconic landmarks that were super important to me. And then came the conversation of, we have to put Beats headphones in the video somewhere. And I'm like, but I'm in the 70s. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, wait, I'm I'm in the 80s at the Olympics where the track runner is holding up the fist. Where where are the headphones going to fit into this landscape? Um, so there were just a lot of challenges that happened during that time from And did you have to change your video? I did and not change my video. I did work to incorporate them. And um, that felt like what for it, you? It felt it felt extremely hard. I think um for me it was it was essentially not having ownership of my body and my voice and my work. Um without the license to actually carry on my artistic vision without that interruptance. And I wasn't being compensated for it either, so that didn't help the situation. And you you were asked to do this simply because you were on this label, they were promoting this product, and you, in effect were a product of the label also. Yes. So this was something that I think was just kind of like fair game Mm. for Interscope artists at Mm -hmm. the time. And so there were just a lot of issues at that time that made me realize that, okay, I understand the major label game now. And it's, it's hard to identify this as like, an evil business because it is a music business and it is their job to generate income (laughs) off of art. And it does operate as sort of a banking system. These are people who are investing into your art. They're fronting the money and therefore they feel incentivized to have, you know, uh, an opinion and um, not only an opinion, some level of control on how you set forth that work. 
And I understand it now. I think at the time I was too young and extremely passionate to look outside of my work as art and in that business forum. And so in some ways, you know, I really respect what I stood by and and how I stood strong in that. And in some ways I look back like, wow, I was really naive. I didn't understand all of the inner workings of the system. But you think you... If you could have understood, you would have made a, a different. Oh no! <laughs> but but I would have had more accountability, and that's to something to to myself. Honestly, I would have had accountability from the the standpoint of understanding that you are entering a business um, transaction, and do you fully understand that before you have then decided to do it? Mm-hmm. Versus doing it and then yelling and screaming and kicking the whole time like, ah, what's happening, you know? After that album, I took a long hiatus. Um, How long? Four years. Mm, That's long. It's long, yeah. It was really hard for me. Um, I, I worked the album probably for two to three years, which was also a really long time. And... I decided that I needed to be home. I needed, my son was starting kindergarten. I needed to ground myself. He had been the tour baby that I had been, you know, as a baby. So I really wanted to kind of domesticate and get home and get organized. And then once I kind of got him into school, I said, you know what, let me rethink how I'm doing this. I know that I love writing music. I know that I love visualizing that. That's a strength that I feel really confident in. Um, How can I do this myself? Mm. And And that's such a big thing because even, even now... I feel like a lot of the mess that we're in, and I mean all of us are in, is in part evidence of our desire for someone else to take care of things, right? Like it's Absolutely. so it's so old and so primal. Yeah. So, you know, you're going to stay in the cave and you want that person to go out and take his club and smash that animal in the head so everybody can eat and it doesn't occur to you that your hands work, that your body works, that you can also go out and pick up and and have agency over your body, your time, Mm -hmm. your energy, your everything. Yes. And okay, I don't want to interrupt you, but it's it's like this is this is This is the thing, yeah. you know? So yes. here you are. You take all of that back in your hands. Yes. And then... And it was hard. And, yeah. s- and speaking to what you just said, um, the really interesting time uh, thing about that time specifically is that when I made that decision to take agency over everything, it was like, well, how am I going to pay for it? <laughs> And um, I had to think of a way outside of my publishing deal to support myself and generate income. 
And your son. And my son. And, and where was your husband? We were not married at the time. time. Okay. I was a single mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you moved away from? We lived in between Houston and Los Angeles. Okay. Um, but he was starting kindergarten. So at that time, we actually grounded ourselves in L.A. Okay. Um, and I had no family there. I had two friends. That was really about me having access during that time for my publishing deal to other producers so that I could frequently be working on music to shop and that whole thing. In L.A., huh? In L.A., yeah. That's That's like songwriter there in Nashville. Okay. And so I had always, since I was a young girl, uh, been a stereo hog. Any party, any dinner party, I was always the one playlisting and, you know, taking over. And actually, as, at a certain point, people started asking me to do that, making playlists for their parties or their weddings or whatever. And so uh, for Christmas, actually, my family bought me some turntables and I totally just did it for the pure joy. I had a lot of DJ friends who are legends, so I'm very lucky and privileged to call friends. And I had just fell in love with it, but never, ever did I think that it would turn into kind of a second career right, alley but for me. It's that thing, it's right? That, thing. that you said. Yeah. It's it's what you loved. Yeah. It is what I loved. So I started throwing these parties called A Party in Houston. And uh, someone had come to the party. I did them weekly at the time. And someone had come and the devastating um, earthquakes happened in Haiti. And they were organizing a fundraiser, and they asked if I would DJ. And I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> like, this is just for fun. When the universe creates a space <laughs> for you, so I know, but uh-huh. I was terrified. Uh, of course. And, you know, he was like, but this is for something that is... Bigger than you. Bigger than you. And, you know... If if there's any time for you to just get in there and purely do it for joy, then this is the time. And I said yes, and then I was sweating for 48 <laughs> hours. Um, but I did it, and literally the next day, um, my agent had calls from all kind of people like, well, will she DJ this and will she DJ that? And I was just floored that, you know, this was something that I love that I could also um, bring joy to people and and also brand myself from the standpoint of my influences and sharing that. And also maybe pay for some studio equipment so that I could have my own studio in my house (laughs) and work on these ideas that I had. So the universe really, really, really blessed me in that moment with that gift. And for about a year, I DJed um, while just saving my coinage. Yes. And I bought myself a Pro Tools rig. And um, I had a spare room in my house. And I built a little DIY studio. 
And I started working on um, my third record, True. And that was such a journey for me because that was the first time that I was able to do things really on my time. Um, I primarily wrote that album and worked on that album from the hours of 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. because that was when my son son was in school. school. Right. I was able to do it at home. I teamed up with a young producer uh, by the name of Dev Hines. And the two of us just were in this space experimenting and creating this music that was so spirited and felt so good and true and pure to us. And when it came down for me to release it, I thought, am I going to do this again and go through and but now you're not you're not on a record no. label so so I was deciding if I was gonna go through that again so you mean like to to approach to, a label to again approach to a shop label your record again, to shop my record in the big house in the big house <laughs> or if I was gonna keep true to the spirit and the essence of independence of funding this album because I had already done the hardest part that's the hard part making it creating it And um, I had some friends who had a small label called Terrible Records, (laughs) all things. (laughs) And they said, we're in love with this album. And they said, we can make this really easy and treat this as a distribution deal. You'd have agency and ownership over everything. And that's what I did. And um, it was Wonderful! It was so thrilling, so exciting, and I feel like the the truest turning point in my career mm-hmm. that led up to where I am now. Um, I had no, you know, promotion, no marketing. I shot the video with my best friend Melina again in South Africa. Um, I was heavily influenced by the Sapir culture and the Lesape culture that was happening in Bamako. Um, My mother was always there, as she always is. Gave me all of her frequent flyer miles (laughs) to fly everyone out um, to Cape Town. And it was truly a labor of love from everyone. But I think that that video had so much power um, as an introduction to the album and the record. And again, wanting to celebrate um, the beauty of blackness and black culture, you know, um, on a global scale and celebrating the diaspora and connecting that um, was super important to me. How do you think that got to be so important to you? Why was that so important to you? Why is it still so important to you? I think that I grew up with really powerful um Images and voices and connectivity through my mother. Um, it was very, very important for for her, for us, to know where we came from. And, um, you know, it's, it's a classic saying, knowing where you came from to know where you're going. And to identify and ground ourselves as descendants of African people that has always been at the forefront of how my mother raised us. And... I think it was also really important for her that, you know, in Houston, the the school systems, as most big cities, can be really complicated. So it was important for her that if we were going to a predominantly white school from 
you know, August until June or however long that that summer we were in Ashe camp, you know, <laughs> learning. <laughs> You know, it was that was super important to her. It was very real. And, um, you know, learning about uh, Kumba and and Umoja and and all of that. And and I'm super, super happy that she made that, um, you know, a requirement for us. And and so I think, yeah, through all of my projects, especially visually, it's always been super important for me to celebrate the beauty um, and the regality of blackness and black culture. Isn't it interesting that, again, it's a it's an everyday kind of lesson that you're saying it doesn't matter what the things look like around you. Yeah. You still have in a place of stillness, yeah. uh, an opportunity to look around and to make choices. Absolutely. And this is a thing that it, it doesn't matter what it is you're doing. That it's true. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so that project in itself was so freeing and so incredible. And I remember putting out the video on the album with no notice. I didn't have like a big iTunes slot or anything that I needed to give all this lead time. So it was just like, here it is. I got a new album out (laughs) and Mm -hmm. here's the accompanying video. And from there, you know, a world of opportunities opened up for me that just felt so good because I, for the first time in my career, did not have anyone holding me back from caring through my vision. And that you didn't hold yourself back because that's the other side of it too, right? Then sometimes we get opportunities to do things Mm -hmm. and we get sick or we (laughs) just all of a sudden we're not there for ourselves. Absolutely. And you didn't hold yourself back from really experiencing uh, the joy of what it was that you had created. Okay, so you do this and now you have all this opportunity, and then what happens? And then I took them all. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes, you did. I did, and and um, it was incredible. And I was really feeling as you know as triumphant as I as I could possibly feel as an artist. And then what happened after that was. Um, actually really a huge turning point um this label and in the context that the album was released in being that it was an indie label who primarily released independent records um i saw a significant change in my audience so changing your audience what does that mean so my shows were predominantly white fan base Um, which my other two albums, I had a pretty mixed fan base Mm -hmm. always. Um, But it definitely, I think there was a little bit of a lack of promotion. Well, I didn't have any promotion, (laughs) to be honest, but it was not reaching certain places. Which was important to you. Which was very important to me. Um, And so... 
that was all fine, but the turning point happened um, when essentially I was on Twitter professing my love for the artist Brandy, who I'm a massive fan of. And there were a lot of white indie music critics who criticized actually me uh, professing this undying love for Brandy, who was an R&B artist. And I think they thought that there was a little bit of irony to it, which I was not expressing at all. And I essentially challenged um, writers that if they were writing about R&B music, that they needed to know who Brandy was. And that was not warmly received Hmm. from everyone. Hmm. And so the New York Times invited me to do a podcast on cultural tourism. Um, There was simultaneously also a lot of conversation about a certain rap uh, album by an artist, Chief Keith, that was being really glorified that a lot of uh, black hip-hop music critics were not fond of because they felt like it was glorifying um, a certain type of hip-hop without glorifying the other realm of hip-hop that was very conscious and intelligent and hopeful and optimistic and uplifting. And that was kind of something that had kept reoccurring, the Mm -hmm. way that these super violent hip-hop records were being written about. And so I kind of got wrapped in there with my comments about Mm R&B. And so New York Times was doing a podcast, and they uh, invited me to be a part of it. It was on cultural tourism, specifically about this Chief Keef review. And I declined. I didn't really see um, any incentive for me to be involved in that conversation in that way. Um, I didn't really feel the need to have a debate about something that I culturally was a part of, and I didn't feel the need to defend that. So they brought up my comments on this podcast, and uh, the writer, who was a uh, white male, actually said, you know, I went to Solange's concert, and I noted who her audience was, Mm -hmm. and If I were her, I'd be careful of making these statements because I'd be careful not to bite the hand that feeds me. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) We can, I think we can have a pause. Okay. Just a slight pause right there. Yes. Wow. But even the, not just the arrogance of the, of the comment, but also the assumption. Oh yeah. The assumption was very real. And then it was actually named, um, does Solange know who's buying her records? So it became a totally different conversation than what I was first approached to be a part of. And then it became a conversation again, yet again, about ownership. And here I was feeling so free, feeling so independent, Feeling like I had ownership finally over my art. But you did. My voice. I did. But I was being challenged on that yet again um, by essentially being told that this audience had ownership over me. And that was kind of the turning point and the transition for me writing the album that is now a seat at the table. I 
begin to think a lot about that conversation and replaying it. And it haunted me. And it haunted my mother. It haunted my mother to hear someone telling her daughter, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, the racial subtleties are not so not so subtle, subtle for sure <laughs> not so subtle um of of you know what that encompasses when you say that to a black woman and then you uh connect it by saying do you know who's buying your records so i was essentially being told to shut up and to silence me and we love your music and we love your work. And we he actually and said... And we want it like this. And we want it like this. And we want you to be quiet. Yeah. And he actually said, you know, and I went to the show and I felt very warm and fuzzy after I left. But, you know, is that but. So um, I begin to write the early stages of the album that is out now, Seat at the Table. Um, primarily based off of that conversation and based off of a lot of conversations that had started to happen during that era of me releasing that album. And um, the feeling of uh, just being silenced through my voice. And, And there's one interesting thing that I, and we talked about this when we were at Mass Makata, that I started to uh, see where you know, the Nina Simones of our times, the Marvin Gaye's of our times, the specifically black artists who made work about blackness and what it felt like to fill this black body and occupy space in a country that still does not value our black bodies um, at the level and place that they should be, that people are generally, they can be comfortable with you telling those stories through your art. And we see this even with black visual artists, but really uncomfortable with you talking about it outside of that context. And that's when the conversation starts to get a little muddy. And so I started to have these conversations very openly Um, in interviews, through social media, through different forums. And I started to see that the more that I uh, took away the haze of here I am, you know, with Hadley Street, I'm having these social uh, landmarks through Black civil rights and Black monumental moments, through my work, but I'm not actually talking about it. Mm -hmm. Here I am through true, I'm doing my video in South Africa, but I'm not actually talking about what that means. So you feel like it's not, that wasn't even enough that you were doing that? No. Because you weren't saying it, literally saying anything? I wasn't spelling it out as explicitly as I had started to through the course of these interviews. And then I started to see, oh, whoa, once I'm operating in this space, I'm actually like now becoming targeted, you know, in a totally different way that I didn't really have the tools uh, yet at the time to mm -hmm. manage with. Um, And so that was a whole nother era of inspiring this album is like working out how to develop those tools through my art and through the conversation of my music um, 
to where now I actually feel much better and much more equipped to have those conversations. I actually had to go through the rage and the frustration and the, the mourning and the protest and the meditation through the album to get to the other side, to be able to have those conversations no matter where I'm being targeted. I can stand firm in that and strong and with my shoulders and my head high. And and so, yeah, I, I wrote that record. And I think um, one of... One of the things that I feel really good about is in the past, I was, I'm I'm a very collaborative person and I was much more open as a songwriter for for collaborative experiences um, in terms of making the music. And this time I really challenged myself that every word, every lyric, mm-hmm. every melody had to come from me. Even when I got so tired and stuck on a line for three days, and it would be so easy to ask Raphael Sadiq, what what should I say here? <laughs> Just feed me this one. Um, but I really stuck to that because this had to be my storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so here I am now. A seat at the table is out. And I feel so much pride and joy in that the universe was able to say that these conversations are our conversations and they can be very successful. You know, this doesn't have to be some underground, here we are in the trenches. Like, no, this is everyone's story. And that has meant so much to me, being able to tell not only my story, but my mom and dad's story and my grandparents' story and Master P's story and just having that forum to be used as a vessel because truly it's not me. It's not about me on this record, although it's personalized. Which again, it's something bigger than you, right? Like yes. you're a vehicle for something Absolutely. much a larger conversation that needs to happen in the culture and that needs to happen in the society and and you get to be a witness to and a conduit for Absolutely. that that conversation to happen. And it it just it feels so big. And I love that that those conversations are also included in your interludes on the record so yes. that you can really hear what people have to say. And, you know, I'm not a I don't like to read social media things, mostly because I think that that it kind of makes you a slave it's in true. a way. It's um, very true. I had a show here for a long time that was overnight music, and I just used to do some stuff, mm-hmm. right? So there would be Mozart and Thelonious Monk mm. and then Meredith Monk, and yes. it it made sense to me, but there were people who hated what I was doing. And the person who was my boss here at the time, her name is Lemore Tomer, she said to me, Helgala, not everybody's going to like what you do. Now go back and do it. Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Which, and I went to her, again, it's that thing I was talking about in the beginning. I went to her because I wanted her to fix it. I wanted her to tell me that I was doing the right thing. I wanted her to say, I love you mm-hmm. and you're so great and to pat me on the head. Mm-hmm. And she basically <laughs> said, yeah, well, okay. There, there's going to be this too, and it doesn't mean 
that all of a sudden you you dry up and fade away. Yeah. Go do your work. Yeah. And yep, you should come back here and check in with me and make sure you're still feeling honest about what it is that you're doing, which is another one of those interludes on on your record, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And if that is true at the end of the day, then the conversation that happens is the conversation that happens. It, it doesn't actually have anything to do with you. Right. Go do your work. Right. Um, and so that's that's a very, very big thing. And it's so nice to hear those stories Um even even on on um, what you call it on Frank Ocean's record, yeah. like to hear his mom yeah. talking yes. to him about yes. smoking pot and yeah. all of that. Uh, it's that's that's real, Very. and it's it's great. Again, for people to know that that's where you come from, and that that's where we all come from, and. Uh, you know, I have a friend who who is doing some really incredible work in the prison system, but the thing that he always reminds me is that hurt people hurt people. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so in that place, and even in the thing that I did at Mass Mocha, in that place where you've done something, you've participated in a system that isn't quite equal. Mm-hmm. You have a lot to fear. Absolutely. And so here I am, also in that system with you, saying, okay, are we going to talk about this? Yeah. <laughs> One, so that we can stop doing it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> right? Absolutely. First. And, and also... So that I can be a better citizen, mm. which which is is about being too more of a human. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I literally last night was just talking about you know how I feel now freer and allowing people to humanize me as a human as a person and as a flawed individual. I think, you know, um, when I wrote this album, it was like such an insular experience in terms of how I isolated myself to write most of it. I, I went to New Iberia where my grandparents are from, which is a small town in rural Louisiana. Wow. So I'm, you know, creating these stories and these sonics and these ideas in this space. And I really didn't, give much um, attention to like how I would share this in a performative way. Um, And even with Saturday Night Live, like I was so, so incredibly nervous, Mm. trembling, Mm. literally trembling because these are such intensely uh, personalized stories and so emotionally driven. But I use the juxtaposition of singing them in this super light, controlled, falsetto way. But as you know, as a vocalist, when you are outraged with emotion, it's really hard to, and nervous, to hold hold that that air and hold that back. And so I was so challenged. But I feel today 
so much freer in that that vulnerability is a part of me and making that a part of my artistry. And I think that until you're able to step into that place and be flawed and experiment and get dirty and get nasty and, you know, strive for perfection but fail or whatever the nuances that you have to go through in terms of elevating to that next phase of your artistry, I feel more willing to do it today than any other time. And I think a part of that is growing up and a part of it is knowing that I made this record and at the beginning of it, I was so scared, so, so scared. Like, is he right? Is my audience going to drop off the face of this earth because I'm being too honest? What um, you know, implications is this going to have on my family? Are we going to be targeted? We roll very low key. And, and what is this going to mean for my son, you know, going to school and, and having his granddad on a song talking about being spit on and the Ku Klux Klan, you know, targeting him on his first day of school? All of those things that were background noise and then working through that despite the fear. I think that this whole chapter is about getting through to the other side despite the fear. And I just feel so incredibly blessed and humbled and grateful. I have so much gratitude that I was able to just do this and do it my way and have that freedom. And so... um, Yesterday, someone was asking me, like, telling me, like, oh, you have, like, whatever number, a media critic or whatever. And I was like, that's so awesome. And it's so glowing. And feel, I'm so grateful. But, like, the reviews are when I see, you know, the girl who tells me that she listens to this every morning as a meditation so that when she goes into the workplace and she has a lot to be mad about, she can channel it through that song and not act a fool. Like that's my <laughs> glowing review, you know? And and that has just been invaluable. It really has been. We talk a lot about about the universe. I want you to tell the story um of when we were at Mass Mocha. So we were there, and yes. it was your son's 12th birthday. Yes. And you weren't at home no. for that. Yes. Talk about, talk about what happened. Yeah. So um, as I mentioned before, uh, Jules, is, Jules is my son's name. Um, his father and I, we co-parent. And so now we switch off for birthdays. And we didn't always do that. We would usually, you know, spend them together or, quite frankly, with me. (laughs) There we go. Let's just say that. So this was a huge, huge step. Um, And I was not there, but my husband was. And my husband and I have been together for eight years. We've only been married for two. But he has been a huge you know, father figure for my son. Mm -hmm. Um, He was three when we first got together. 
And so here I am there on that day at Mass Mocha in this Nick Cave, incredibly glorious insulation. Crying, crying and having this heavy day. (laughs) But I'm also like carrying the weight of me not being there on this special day and me worrying like, how is this going with my son's father and my husband? Did they did they not always get along? They've always been very respectful, but they have not just been like hanging out. And I got a video of the three of them, um, you know, playing basketball, uh, going to dinner. They went to a Brazilian restaurant and I saw pictures of the three of them. And it was just honestly the best like gift that I could have ever gotten on because as 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 mothers know the birthday is also your birthday too and it was just a glorious moment in time and honestly when I think about this album and the relationships that it's affected in a positive way the last song on the album scales is greatly inspired by my son's father and some of the systematic challenges that he's had to navigate through as a black man growing up in America. And I have been able to have a certain level, a certain type of forgiveness, not level, a certain kind of forgiveness that I was not able to achieve before making this album. And it's brought us closer together. It's brought me and my father closer together, it's been very healing. And so in that moment, the universe did more than have my back. You know, it really, really gave us a gift that day. And it went from me that morning. You remember I was like almost breaking on the hives. Mm -hmm. I was so nervous about that day. And then seeing that image of the three of them together celebrating such a special, beautiful moment. It was it just brought me over the moon. And also just that you had to let go. Right. (laughs) Like you could not micromanage that from from where you were. And you even said to me, you know, if I had been there, you would have been planning. You would have been planning. You would have been doing this and moving. In the car and the kids and yeah. the kid, blah, 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 blah. yeah. And instead, mm-hmm. you had to let go of all of that. Yeah. And also, you were in a place where you really wanted to be yes, present. Right? I did. You, you I did. Really wanted to. I be wanted there. to be there. And yeah, it was about letting go. And and I did. I did say to you, I was like, I know if I was there, this moment wouldn't have happened, or maybe it wouldn't have happened. It would have happened, but it wouldn't have happened in this way. And so, yeah, it's it's just a great life lesson when the universe constantly does the work it's supposed to do. One of the reasons that I I feel like I got attached to you, and I just am going to use that word yeah. so Likewise. so quickly, is from when we met, mm-hmm. and so I know whatever room we were in and. We were on the steps. We got together, Mm -hmm. and I looked at you, and I put my hand out, and you put your hand out. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I appreciated more than anything was that I didn't feel that you were asking me to be less than I was to be in your presence. Mm. And I think this is such a fundamental human thing. 
right? Absolutely. Um, and that I actually got to just be myself, Absolutely. right? And because I love to look at the people, right? <laughs> I do. I want to look. I want to see who's in front of me. Yeah, and it's it's not a challenge, and it's not some alpha bitch thing. No, it's I just this is where I am in my life and in the world, and I want to look at you, and I'm going to shake your hand, and it's it's I'm that's what I want to do. Well, I was taking notes and studying this. (laughs) glorious woman in front of me this regal glorious like, phenomenon yes, that's my so we were sister we were right fangirling there. left yes. and right fangirling back and forth. Oh, i love that yes. okay all right <laughs> and i have been fangirling you ever since keep up on these I terms <laughs> not to mention that you i was like okay skin secrets not to skin, go there we, I hear your voice in my head all day, every day, because you are so right in that I touch my face all day. Yeah. So thank you for that. And we never know. Like, you know, they're just, they are little unconscious things. Well, like you said, you like to see people and study them and like... You peeped. And I and I know that I do it. <laughs> yeah. Right? And and so yes. I get that. Last thing. Okay. Don't touch my hair. Okay. <laughs> Look, here's my note. Don't touch my hair and the African American struggle oh my God. for agency over the black body. My nieces, wigs and weaves. Ooh, so, <laughs> come on. Think peace. Okay, I'm sorry. And wigs we, you, and you've, weaves. You've, we've talked about agency over the black body. Yes, we have. And, and here's the, my nieces are so sick of me talking about them and their weaves and their hair. Mm. And here's my thing okay. with them. I don't care, really, that they that they wear wigs mm-hmm. and weaves. What I care about is that they would never cut their hair. Mm. They would never not wear a wig and uh, a weave. I see. I see. And as an African-American woman mm-hmm. whose grandmother, my grandmother looks completely different than me, as you can Mm -hmm. imagine. As we do. And I remember, you know, being 12 and already taller than the tallest boy Mm -hmm. in my class, uh, running track, so without the classic girl body, right? Mm -hmm. And my grandmother said to me, Heliga, You're not a bad-looking child, but it's a pity you come so black. Oh, wow. Right? So there's that. All of that. To say or to ask Mm -hmm. and and to have a little bit of conversation just around around identity, Mm -hmm. around freedom of choice because what what my nieces say to me is that this is and my brothers say this is not a big deal and they are expressing themselves and and be quiet mm-hmm. and it's i again i don't have any problem with expression right but they don't they don't know who they are without it i understand that and their daughters don't know who they are now without it mm-hmm. and it 
bothers me mm-hmm. so much. And my brothers just say, well, they have you. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's what I say. <laughs> well, I grew up in a hair salon. Yes. Literally. Mm-hmm. Ah. So I saw uh, how much hair for a black woman really carried out our identity and the way that we communicated who we were. Not only that, I saw all kinds of women relating to the idea of wanting to uh, present the beautifications of ourselves, <laughs> uh-huh. no matter who they were. If yeah. they were lawyers, judges, strippers, yep. uh, church ladies, everybody. everybody was in there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I understood the weight and the, the loftiness of what black hair meant to women specifically. Um, and I had a complica- complicated relationship with my hair in that when I was 13, when I went through that phase, mm-hmm. I cut all of my relaxer off. I started to wear these really long red braids. And what that communicated to people as a young girl um, And then once I had my son, I was in the the relationship with my son's father, who was a star football player. And I began to straighten my hair and I dyed it back black. And it was like the more classic version of how I saw myself. Um, And then once we split up, I cut it all off, (laughs) all over again, Uh started over. And that was during the era of social media. And so this haircut was like kind of widely shared. Mm And Oprah actually had me come on the show and talk about what that meant to me. And so it became very statement making. Um, And I actually was quite annoyed um, in some instances that that meant to people in some weird way that I was smarter or more intellectual or in that some your natural way. hair made you smarter and more yeah, intellectual? Yeah, I did feel that sense from people. So yeah, the, the relationship is ha- with hair has been very deep. And when I, uh, Sanfa, a musician and artist who's featured on the song just started playing this little Rhodes sound and for whatever reason I just hummed don't touch my hair and then it transitioned into a much deeper bigger and deeper conversation about us getting to have the opportunity to celebrate all of the glory and the proud pride and the proudness that we should be able to without criticism, without um, without your voice chiming in on this and without, you know, us just being able to have this moment to be us and celebrate the beauty of us. So, you know, it has a much deeper meaning past the surface. And, and you know, just the other night, someone still stuck their hands in, no. in my head. Yeah. No. <laughs> so no. There's, there's, but Where again, look at my, my assistant is like, are you going to say? Okay, sorry. You don't need to say. <laughs> I'm not going to say. But, but, but really. You know, yeah, it was it was actually after I had performed the, the, the song. song. <laughs> of course. Right. Of course. But again, I feel more equipped 
to, like I said, I have a new set of tools now mm-hmm. where I feel like through uh, the working out these um, internal issues through this album, I gained a new little tool set that I'm able to use. And I feel like I've said all that I can say. Right. And so now I can stand in that truth and not have to carry the emotional baggage on the same level. Of course, it's going to still of course, hurt and burn and sadden and I'm human. Mm-hmm. But I feel much more equipped through the working out some of these things through the record that I can stand, stand firm in my stance and my voice. So... I'm going to let you go because you've been here a long time. I know that we had this conversation, but know that uh, in whatever way and for whatever reason, we have been a part of one another's journey and that I really, really, really adore you and appreciate, um, appreciate all of this time to be together and I know you have to run I I know you have to run I know I know I know I know I know you have to run (laughs) but thank you so so much thank you so 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 much to to learning more from you because you are a goddess I thank you and um, I will, from time to time, do this with you yes. and just know that I'm thinking about you. Okay. And that's the most important thing. I'm not interested in, oh, well, she didn't text me back. <laughs> uh, like that's, I have absolutely no, like none of that. Yeah. I just want you to know I'm thinking about you. Thank and, you. And, uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank Hug Helga and, and run. I didn't lie to you. I told you that it would be great for Solange to come in and talk to us. And it really was great that she was able to be here and to share with us all of that history, all of the things that we probably did not know about her as a person and as an artist. In the same way that we've heard from her, I would love to hear from you. You can always reach me at helga at wqxr.org. Share your stories of creativity and how you used your creativity in your life. This episode of Helga was produced by Julia Alsop and executive producer Alex Ambrose, with help from Curtis McDonald and original music by Alex Overington. Special thanks to Cindy Kim, Lorraine Maddox, Michael L. Sesser, Jacqueline Sincotta, and John Chow.